Today's TribCast is presented by Canvas, a learning management system that Texas districts use to provide every student with equitable access to high-quality instruction. Learn more at canvaslms.com. And Texas A&M University. Thanks to a new partnership with Houston-based biotechnology company Celtex, the Texas A&M Institute for Regenerative Medicine is searching for the cure to Alzheimer's. Read more at tribtalk.org. Texas Talking Out. What was that that you said? Texas Talking Out. Gonna hoop upside your head. Texas Talking Out. Tell me who can you trust when Texas Gods are Texas Gods Hi, I'm Ilya Krasilchik, publisher of the news organization Medusa, The Real Russia Today. We enjoyed having the Texas Tribune represented at our annual journalism conference in Moscow. Welcome to this week's TripCast. Now here is your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you, or Spasibo. That's what I learned. I was holding out for the George Papadopoulos. That's all I learned on uh, on my travels in Russia. Uh, This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, June 11th, with your Texas Tribune TribCast. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. I mean, really, if you think about all the people you could have gotten in Russia who are somehow connected to this Mueller investigation, and instead you got some boring journalist. I didn't find a single P tape while I was there. Ugh. <laughs> Were you looking? I was definitely looking. <laughs> I mean, ugh. Uh, I'm also happy to introduce New York Times Magazine and ProPublica reporter Pam Koloff. Nice to be here. I, I'm squeamish. <laughs> what, about having Pam on the TripCast? Well, no, I love having Pam on the but you talked about P in front of Pam. I actually have kind of an enormous problem with that. And criminal justice reporter Jolie McCulloch, who Hello. loves talking about P tapes on the TripCast. <laughs> She's Not, super comfortable. my favorite thing. You're so weird. All right. D- d- what? Since you came back from Russia, you're just... No, I'm not going uh, to... Right. Kind of, I'm kind of a prick. This is not news. It's true. It's true. We'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, and I know all of you have probably read Pam's incredible two-part series. You can also sign up for her newsletter. But Pam, I want to start with you, your very first time on the TribCast. We're so happy to have you officing right down the hall from us. Uh, I want to hear you talk about Blood Will Tell, the crazy case on the mid-1980s murder of Mickey Bryan, who is this beloved you know, small-town school teacher with an equally beloved school principal husband in this, um, in Clifton, Texas. So first of all, like, how did you hear about this case? How did you determine that of all the things that you work millions of hours on, that this was the case you wanted to sink your teeth into? Um, I follow the Texas Forensic Science Commission pretty closely, and I am one of those weird people who goes to all their quarterly meetings, which are attended by about maybe 20 or 25 people, um, because you can find out fascinating things at those meetings. And uh, I was intrigued last year when I learned that they were looking into two cases that involved a type of forensic science called bloodstain pattern analysis, which is something that I had seen used in trials I'd covered and always thought was somewhat uh, I just wasn't sure if there was much science behind it. Isn't this and what was in, like, Dexter, the show Dexter? This is what was in Dexter. Right, this or CSI. CSI. Right. <laughs> You've seen it on all the shows. Right. Um, but I had covered a trial in East Texas a couple years ago where I had seen two opposing ac- experts look at the same bloodstains, and one concluded that the defendant had killed the victim in the case, and the other concluded that the victim had committed suicide, but they were looking at the same evidence. And so I thought, this is bizarre. I want to know more about this. And the fact that the commission was looking into it seemed interesting. And 
uh, Joe Bryan's case was one of the cases they were looking into. Got it. And so this was a case that you know dated back to the 80s. Uh, I mean, give us the like the the super Cliff's Notes version of this case. Sure. So this uh, this crime took place in Clifton, Texas, which is about uh, 40 miles west of Waco. Uh, in Bosque County, and Joe Bryan was a beloved high school principal there, um, very well thought of, uh, by all accounts was in a happy marriage with no apparent problems. He was married to a school teacher named Mickey Bryan, and um, Joe was out of town, he was in Austin at a principal's convention when he learned by his telling that his wife had been murdered in their home the previous evening. Um, and so my story talks about the investigation that followed and how a uh, flashlight that had blood on it that was found in his trunk almost a week later by his brother-in-law who had had control of the car was used to tie Joe to the crime. Got it. So, I mean, the, this blood spla- splatter, blood spatter? It has spatter? to be spatter. And spatter, if you say not splatter, splatter, they get really mad. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> Blood spatter analysis. You did something that not a lot of journalists do, which is you actually like went and got trained in the analysis of this stuff. I'm yes. so jealous. I know. <laughs> it's like every journalist's so, dream, basically. Well, especially when you're dealing with science, I thought, well, any... Um, I already had my suspicions about bloodstain pattern analysis from reading I'd done and, and some of the cases I'd, I'd sat in on. Um, but I thought any criticism I make of it they're going to come back and say, well, you just don't understand it. And if you actually had our training and our expertise, then you would understand what we're doing. So I was like, well, I'll just go and get the expertise, which sadly is not very hard. It involves taking a one-week class, which I did in Yukon, Oklahoma, um, with the main uh, group that offers these courses, a place called Bevel Gardner and Associates, uh, which is a company run by sort of the preeminent expert in the field, uh, Tom Bevel. And in the course of a week after swinging around a bloody axe, that's Did, one of the things I got to do. Was there actual, um, what was on it? Was it like This was actual blood? human blood. What? Yes. Oh my God. We were not told how the blood was I was, was going to say, how was it obtained? But we were donation? assured it was actual human blood. Were you assured that it was disease free? We were assured it was disease free. <laughs> we had to take somebody's right word for that. Oh um, and but somebody's we were, word for it in Oklahoma. <laughs> We had to wear right. full body hazmat <laughs> suits and it was it okay. was very um as a reporter I was very happy as it was happening cuz I thought this is going to be a lot of fun to describe so Yeah. Uh you, did you so you got covered in somebody else's blood for a week basically? That's a, a good synopsis. Throwing around murder weapons. Yes. Uh. This is consistent with the Pam I've known for so many years. You work harder than almost anybody I know. Your work ethic is amazing and you will throw yourself into Says stories. the greatest workaholic I've ever <laughs> known. No, no, no. He's not in any blood spatter I, classes. I'm, I'm, I have no hazmat suit on right now that you can see. Um, th- this is my question for you because I am so familiar with your work past and, and present. Why does anybody talk to you? At this point, you're no longer a novelty act. You well, know, you're two not, people in the story didn't talk to her. Well, I know, <laughs> but, gen- but, gen- but generally speaking, when you report a story like this, people see you coming up the highway. What, what has changed about your approach to reporting a story like this one, say from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, when you started out writing these epic big, these crime stories? That's a good question. Well, one benefit is that in Bosque County, no one knew what ProPublica was, so that mm. didn't 
that, that actually helped. Sure. Um, a lot of people didn't talk. And uh, one of the problems that I've had in recent years is that often prosecutors won't talk to me and I want to talk to prosecutors. I want to hear what the state side of a case is. Um, and often when the defense is the only side talking to me, um, I have no doubt that influences to some degree how I come to see a well, case. you get one side of the story. Right. So um, it, it's, it's, it's a shame. Uh, but I, I don't have the answer to that question. I just try to convince them that I'm... Have you learned anything about what motivates people to talk in cases like this? Usually because they feel rightly or wrongly that they're correct. In like their, everything else, in it's, self, it's self-interest. Like and the DA in the Bernie case, for example, was like sure. somebody who really wanted to make sure their side of the story was heard. And, and like I said, I, I want to hear that story. So it's frustrating when um, with the Bosque County DA's office, I reached out repeatedly over the course of a year and I think sort of became a stalker. Um, and I, I couldn't even get a denial, like, no, we're not going to talk to you. Uh, they went so far as to fight my uh, request for photographs of the flashlight, which was their main piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. And we had to fight that all the way to the AG's office. And for the first time ever, thank you, Texas Attorney General's office, uh, the AG's office ruled in our favor that we were entitled to see those photographs. Ken Paxton, Pam Koloff, thanks you. <laughs> All right, so I want to know what you think happened here. I, I mean, are you convinced that he's innocent, that there's an innocent man behind bars? I don't feel that I can say either way whether uh, Jim Bryan say or won't say. is, can't say, uh, whether he's innocent or guilty. What I can say is that I think there is insufficient evidence to convict him. Um, and I think there's a compelling argument to be made that he couldn't have, con have committed this crime. Um, so I think what's frightening to me is that someone with a perfect reputation, um, by all accounts a great marriage, someone who wasn't in town, by all accounts, there were no witness statements that ever placed him in Clifton within 24 hours of the crime, um, could both go through the character assassination that he did. The, one of the big things they used with the jury was to insinuate that Joe was gay, which there was no evidence of. Like because he liked to play the piano, basically. Because <laughs> yeah, he wasn't, in the words of one person I interviewed, a manly man. Um, and in 1985, that uh, that went a long way, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, do you believe, all right, so you, you don't have enough information, to, evidence to say one way or the other. Do you um, believe that blood spatter analysis is bunk science after going through this process? I mean, a couple, several months ago, I went through a concealed handgun license class just because I was curious what it took. And I was the absolute worst performer in the entire class. And I got uh, approved. Uh, I got like a 97. And to me, I was like, oh, my God, it is so easy to get a concealed handgun license. Well, that's just because when it comes to test taking, you probably always were a patty perfect. Right? No, no, no. <laughs> I, my shot was like a disaster. I mean, I didn't even like hit the target. Anyway, what? that wasn't the point. That's the, the, hard to so miss. my point is like you sometimes go through these. Yeah, I know, Jolie. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but Annie Oakley, come right. on. I did good on mine. I'm sure I, she I did. have no doubt. But I go through. I went through something like that, and I was like, oh my god, this system is like you know. Right. Did you leave that that week of training thinking this is bunk? Yes, and so I, I should have explained. But the 40 hours of training that I had is the totality of the training that the expert in Joe Bryan's case had when he testified in both trials. So you're as much and of an expert literally. I at that as time he, was. he later got more training, but yes. And um, 
in Texas and many other states around the country 40 hours of training in this um, from someone in my case who hasn't had a math or science class in decades um, I am, can be qualified I guess I would have to have a law enforcement background, but a law enforcement officer with 40 hours of training can be qualified as an expert witness. Well, if this whole ProPublica thing doesn't work out, sell your services, right. I have a question, because you mentioned like how this could happen to someone who's seemingly so beloved and has such a great reputation in the, in his small town community. Did it make you think of like how prevalent, like I know you mentioned in the first, in your first, the first story that people really were trusting of the justice system and if a jury finds you guilty then you must be guilty. Did you think, do have people in Clifton kind of changed with that or when the jury handed down their sentence were they like, oh well I guess he was guilty or? I, I think it was mostly the latter um, which was really interesting to me and just uh, during the course of my reporting over the years, something I've noticed is that in white communities, people who are convicted of crimes, uh, their friends and family often turn on them because they believe in the criminal justice system. Whereas, again, broadly speaking, just in, just in my own reporting, in communities of color, uh, there is a lot more support for defendants and a lot more suspicion uh, of of convictions and so forth. That's a broad generalization. But in Joe's case, I mean, this was someone who had cared for people's children who had been in their homes. And the power of a jury's verdict um, was enough for many people. Mm -hmm. On the question of suspicion, going back again over the many years that you've done this kind of work, you wrote about Anthony Graves. Mm -hmm. You wrote about Michael Morton, two of the most famous exonerees in the history of the modern, you know, modern history of Texas. Have you come to believe in the course of all of this that the criminal justice system is doing something wrong? Again, broadly characterizing the performance of this system. Yes. Or are I mean, these just where, are these the outliers that prove that? <laughs> you can help me with right. this. Yes, we'll or are these that the outliers that, prove, that, that are sort of the exceptions that prove the rule? Well, I think th a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, I don't think everyone who's in prison is innocent by, by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, I think sometimes the the evidence uh, that is used to put people behind bars is much grayer than, than we're led to believe. And that's what really drew me to want to write about forensic science in particular is um, I was just amazed. I mean, I, I, I thought I knew some of the grays to forensic science, but it's all gray, even now with DNA. Um, there are so many gradations uh, so many of these disciplines are opinion-based disciplines. Um, and in the case of blood spatter, uh, you, you really have a, what would be called a 50% error rate. You have people who look at the same thing and see two different things. And what, comes down, what it comes down to for a jury is who's wearing the nicer suit, who's a better communicator with the jurors. And that's terrifying to me because it's not science at its core. Right. I mean, we've seen this with arson cases. We've seen this with bite mark cases. I mean, one after the other, these different kinds of, you know, quote unquote, science that were used have now been thrown out. Even fingerprint and right. DNA evidence. Right. Is, is Texas any worse at this than any place else? I'm just still stuck on this idea hmm. of, of, of the system and whether the system has a, a, a fundamental problem that needs to be fixed. 
I'm going to ask Jolie what she thinks, but let me just interject <laughs> one thing. The fact that we have the Texas Forensic Science Commission. It's actually a big deal. <laughs> is such a big deal. People really go to their meetings, everyone. They're fascinating. Right. They're doing amazing, amazing work. They're doing the work that our federal government is supposed to be doing, but Jeff Sessions disbanded the national version of this group. Um, and so you have people meeting in hotel rooms four times a year who are hashing out really, really important answers to these questions. So I, I don't. I don't, I don't think we're any better in terms of what's allowed in the courtroom yet, but we're getting there, and I think we're a leader in all of this as far as reform. Yeah, I think, I, mean, I wouldn't say Texas is worse than the nation. I, there's definitely a lot of the same issues in terms of you know forensic science or eyewitness testimony and any other type of evidence that has been you know questioned and how sufficient it is, but there are we do have a lot of reforms going on and there is a big bipartisan movement in Texas um, to kind of get some, to make sure that we're putting the right people in prison. Not that it's saying it's always working. Well, right. and honestly, Jolie, based on your reporting over the last couple of years, it feels to me like there are many more instances of people saying, let's pump the brakes on this death, death sentence or that, you know, assumed guilt. And maybe it's just proximity to it, but it feels like it's more lately. Yeah, you know, yeah and I think that's a, a, nation, that's a nationwide trend. Um, and a lot of it, uh, so much of the criminal justice system comes down to the prosecutors. Um, and you've seen progressive uh, prosecutors get into big cities like Houston. Um, and that in Texas, where well, actually, Harris County makes... We remember Craig so Watkins money. before Kim Og. There right. was Craig Watkins in Dallas who, for whatever other eccentricities and peculiarities... Uh, <laughs> are the legacy of his time in office. And car hijinks, yeah. But he was really one of the people mm -hmm. who brought the exoneration and innocence conversation mm -hmm. to the forefront. Right. Well, and the yeah. conviction integrity units, I mean, all of this is new, and we have a fair number of those here. Mm -hmm. I, I would hazard to guess we're ahead in a lot of those categories compared to other states. Yeah. Right. You know, there's about to be, a, I mean, Emily and Jolie know this, and maybe you know this also, that there's about to be a feature film based on the Cameron Todd Willingham case, mm -hmm. one of the most mm -hmm. famous cases in which the innocence of the person who was executed was yeah, Jolie and I went to an early Ed, screener. Ed's Wick, it's an Ed's Wick director. Film. Yep. How, how was it? We never talked about it, actually. I thought it was amazing, but I obviously have you're, a special you're, interest in you're the into topic. This, right? I yeah. think every movie that's longer than 90 minutes uh, needs to be thrown See, out. I, yeah, Seriously? Um, Emily yes. was, thought it was I thought too it was long, and long. I was like, it was just the right. Really? I, it but, could but have but gone I, on for 30 more minutes. I think the point is, though, that these kinds of, you know, kind of the, the, the raising the consciousness of people outside the immediate circle you know, to this question as right. a feature film would tend to do or as a major magazine article. Mm -hmm. Of course, it was the David Grann right. article in The New Yorker all those years ago that brought the Cameron Willingham case to the forefront to begin yeah. with. Right? I mean, it as definitely it, has a bias. And the way that your Michael Morton st stories and reporting were really mm -hmm. the catalyst for a lot of the Michael Morton stuff. Right. Yeah. But, but with Willingham and with this case, I mean, people continue to be surprised that forensics are not as rock solid as they think because they've been raised on CSI. Right. Mm -hmm. right. And CSI <laughs> is not remotely reality. Yeah. And to that point, it's not just blood spatter. It's also, you know, it's arson mm -hmm. uh, evidence. It's a bite mark. Uh, evidence. It's um, tire tread comparisons. Tire tread comparisons. And honestly, it's even eyewitness testimony, yeah, right. which totally. is a, it, it's often questioned yeah. right, in its validity. Well, right. Pam, I want to. Uh, you're going to make a little news today on this Tribcast because I'm going to ask you uh, what is next for Joe Bryan. So uh, I thought this I, was going to be about Jake Silverstein. I <laughs> uh, we have 
learned that last week the parole board denied uh, Joe parole. This is his fifth attempt to get parole. He has been incarcerated for over 30 years. He's 77 years old. He has congestive heart failure. He's on his third pacemaker. Uh, he has a pristine disciplinary record, works six days a week. Um, and I think my question, which I'll never know the answer to, is what were the reasons behind the board's uh, decision making? And we, will, we can never know that because everything they do is done in secret. And so uh, Joe does not have any sense of due process there as far as protesting whatever uh, pressures may be coming at the board from the other side. Did they just cite like the like I know on the dangerousness they, like of the, the crime, the, the, the severity, yeah, the severity of the crime, mm -hmm. yeah, that right. seems to be right. the popular one. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, well, Pam, our Facebook and uh, Twitter commenters say this story was one of the most interesting and exciting things I've read this year. So thank uh, you. Yes, it was phenomenal. And just a reminder, if you're tuning in on Facebook or Twitter, you can post your questions in the comments and we will do our best to get to them. Uh, before our next topic, I just want to quickly thank another Tribcast sponsor, Ambassador Tony Garza. Mexico is more than just a neighbor. For timely cross-border insight, turn to former U.S. Ambassador Antonio Garza at TonyGarza.com. He's got his own website. He's a sponsor of the TripCast. Apparently. Wow. I'm not in charge of these things. I just, just read the read ads. just read the stuff that they give you, right. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Jolie, uh, I want to pivot to another uh, criminal justice topic. We've been talking about you know, potential wrongful convictions and prosecutions. Uh, you've been writing a lot in the last couple of weeks about a series of death row cases um, involving uh, inmates with intellectual disabilities. So in 2002, the Supreme Court said people with intellectual disabilities aren't eligible for the death penalty. And just over a year ago, that court knocked down Texas's method of determining whether death row inmates had intellectual disabilities, basically using a ruling that the state sort of used outdated medical, um, you know, standards and had sort of like invented its own rules, right? Mm -hmm. So in the last week, the Court of Criminal Appeals upheld one death sentence where there were claims of an intellectual disability and delayed another one. Um, talk us through sort of the differences in those cases. Sure. So I'll start with the easier one. Um, Clifton Williams was the Court of Criminal Appeals issued a stay last week, which means they stopped his upcoming execution, which was set for next week. Um, because he had previously claimed that he was intellectually disabled and his claims had been rejected, but now with this new Supreme Court ruling that happened last year, uh, the court sent it back to the trial court in Tyler and Smith County. So um, this would be like an example of some of that progress we were talking about, right? Like, <laughs> in yeah. theory, they're saying, like, the, pump the brakes, you know? Right. Like, you have to go under this new ruling, like, reevaluate whether or not he has an intellectual disability. Um, he, just for context, he was convicted in a 2005 murder in Tyler of, um, you know, a home robbery where he he killed an elderly woman um and again like none of these issues are ever unlike in pam's story contesting guilt it's just convict like contesting, contesting whether you should be put, whether to, you death. Should be put to death right. or be sentenced to life in prison um and so that was that one and then i think it was the next day um the Court of Criminal Appeals came down with a big ruling that we've been waiting on for a while, um, and it was in the case that went to the Supreme Court last year. So the Supreme Court invalidated Texas's method for determining if someone is intellectually disabled if they are a death-sentenced individual, um, saying, yeah, it was outdated. They were using science from, like, 1992, and then they had also come up with a set of factors that they were, that the court itself had in, come up with, um, and these are elected judges, and this was things like if your family member would think that you had an intellectual disability, if you 
have a good it's like how well you can lie and like what type of planning was involved in the murder so like pretty random th- things that not like scientists weren't proposing or medical experts. It was right. just like basically what those elected it was more judges like layman, thought. Like what the layman's terms, like what or, society yeah. would think. Um, which you know the courts have ruled it doesn't have to necessarily like solely be what scientists or what like medical community would think, but it has to be based on that framework. Um, and then so in this ruling last week, the court it was actually pretty surprising. They said, okay, we'll accept current medical science as our framework, but this guy, Bobby Moore, still doesn't qualify as intellectually dis- disabled. So, like, even, so we acknowledge our previous set of standards were bunk, and now we have new ones, and he still doesn't qualify. Right. He's still not intellectually disabled yeah. under our bench. Right. And this is pretty surprising because there were a lot of indications in the Supreme Court ruling that the court agreed that he was intellectually disabled. They didn't go so far as to say that, but they were mentioning things like he wasn't able to tell time and um, oh like when he was like 13. And and, st- and the court relied very a lot on things that happened while he was in prison in a very con- like concrete environment like that's that they've warned against things like using adaptations in that environment like he learned to read in prison and he learned how to use the commissary which is the prison store um and that after the commission of the crime after the commission of the crime yeah so um you'd think none of this would be relevant to the question whether he was intellectually disabled at the time of the crime right well the thing with intellectual disability is it's is more of a life Long, uh, well, but if the theory of it is that it's a, pers- illness, it's a persistent a condition, fluid. the question, right. though, I mean, I come back to this, the question is, what were the circumstances at the time that the crime was committed? Yeah, and right. learning how to use the commissary doesn't seem like it's, you know, should be an indication. Well, that, I mean, and that's a big argument. Right. Judge Elsa Alcala, which is, she's a known death penalty critic, and she's actually retiring at the end of this year, but she wrote, like, a 67-page dissent basically slamming this um, order, uh, saying oh. that they're use- they aired, and they said that they were using the current uh, you know, medical framework, but that they used it incorrectly. Um, it, it was also it was interesting because the prosecutor in this case, which is now Kim Og, the progressive in Harris County, ha- had also said that this man is intellectually disabled and asked for the Court of Criminal Appeals to change his sentence, and they didn't. Wow. And so what does any of this mean for the death penalty in Texas, like beyond these particular cases? Yeah, so this case was really, it was surprising for Bobby Moore himself because he did not get the relief that he seemingly was coming for him. But um, it, it is you know, a big step that the court said will use this current medical framework from now on. They, the Supreme Court didn't say they had to use only current medical science. It just had to be based off of that. And so they are, I mean, it could affect, you know, Clifton Williams case if it goes back, like now courts are going to be using these medical frameworks. And that was the thing that Kim Og said in her statement after this ruling was that, you know, everyone else now who has intellectual disability claims on death row will hopefully get the right Right. Can't we knit together these two things, the first topic and the second topic today, and say that we're really moving to a different frame of mind about the death penalty, capital punishment in Texas, that there's more openness to considering the wisdom of the sentence. There are more people from uh, surprising political perspectives who are questioning whether this is a the, the, the right way to approach it. I, I feel like we're at a moment where we're going to begin to see change. Some would define it as progress and some would not. I mean, we've already but change. We've already been seeing change in that juries and prosecutors and juries are going for the 
death penalty much, much less Much often. less. I think we're at a near historic number of mm-hmm. death sentences handed down annually, right? But, but then, but then yeah. you have the remarkable situation where Harris County, I mean, I know Kim Og is in charge, but let's just think historically. Harris the County, County in the country. Harris mm-hmm. County does not want to execute this guy, but the CCA says that's no. okay. Right. So we have a long way to go. And we I do. think, sure. you know, there's there's that. Baby steps. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's still the busiest death row in the country. And, you know. And people all over the state and the country still, you know, it's very adamantly support the death penalty. Right. It's not, I mean, that like said, a, again, the flip side of that coin is like, you know, prison, prison that, reform. I'd love, to, I'd love to know if we polled that recently. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm to sure see we the, have. What the, uh, Someone called Jim Paging Henson. Paging Jim Henson. Yeah. I'd love to know what the trend line is. I think our last trend was a line few is. years ago, I mean, but you I, know, I know like nationally. And I think, I think re- prison reform, this is a, a big area. Texas is, you know, a, a leader largely with the, I mean, in right. some ways we have more sort of conservatives and uh, liberals in Texas. This you is know. the true bipartisan issue. Right. I mean, it's the one thing right. everybody's sort of getting behind. Well, right. I mean, conservatives is a lot in like the legislature is still very very pro death penalty for the mm-hmm. most part but the, I think one of the things that's starting to come from both sides is the fact that there there might be some things that are aren't working with it not that they want to get rid of it but that some things might need to be tweaked right well and now we have life without the possibility of parole so you have that, that changes everything and that sort of has created I think its own separate issue which is we have a lot of media attention on uh, the death penalty, but then you but have people on those. serving mm-hmm. extremely right. long sentences with right. no recourse. Right. True. Yeah, and it definitely those get almost no attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, that's all the time we have. We're not even going to get to talking about Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke, so <laughs> oh, no. Evan will be so Evan's disappointed. So uh, you, know, you know what? I'm, I'm good. <laughs> good. I'm good with that. That's fine. If you like listening to the Tribcast every week, we've got something else you'll love, an audio news brief that shows up each morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. You can learn more at trib.it slash thebriefpodcast. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to Canvas, Texas A&M University, and Ambassador Tony Garza, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Evan, Jolie, Pam, and our producers, Todd, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. You you have an out, you have an outside yeah, voice. I, I have been witness to your outside voice. <laughs>